Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, this is Matt Zuckerman. Welcome to another exciting episode of Talks Talk, the toxicology podcast produced by the Division of Toxicology at the University of Massachusetts. This is going to be, it promises to be an exciting show. We've got some uh, great segments coming up. And even more exciting, I wanted to announce that we are going to have a Talks Talk t-shirt contest. Yes, uh, those of you out there who want to uh, openly admit your love uh, interest obsession with toxicology can do so. And so uh, head over to our website, toxtalk.org, that's T-O-X-T-A-L-K.org, to uh, view some of the uh, submitted designs. And if you look at them and uh, hate them, uh, you can submit your own. And so that's a good thing. So head on over to the website to take a look at the designs, cast your vote uh, for the winning Tox Talk uh, t-shirt. Uh, and then on this episode, uh, our last episode of 2011, uh, first up, we are going to be uh, interviewing Bob Hoffman, uh, joining us from the New York City uh, Poison Control Center. Dr. Hoffman will be talking about, essentially, uh, will be talking about a recent talk he gave at the NACCT conference on uh, medical marijuana. Promises to be a very interesting segment. After that, we have a Talks Pearl from uh, my very own co-fellow, Brian Wolk. Uh, many people think that Brian got into the UMass uh, Fellowship just because he's easy on the eyes, but nope, he does indeed have a, a pretty good brain up there, and so he's going to give us a nice Talks Pearl that should help us in our clinical practice. And then we're going to close by responding to a listener question. I want to thank those of you who have submitted questions. Uh, please continue to do so. You can do so by emailing us at talkstalk at talkstalk.org or going to the website website and clicking on Contact Us. This will be a listener question answered by Ed Boyer. Uh, this first segment uh, with Dr. Hoffman uh, is an interview recorded uh, telephonically. Our Talks Talk transport budget was not enough to get uh, Dr. Hoffman a bus or train ticket to come up, and uh, so we're doing this uh, the sort of the old-fashioned way uh, via the telephone. Yes, Talks Talk has joined the 19th, 20th century, uh, but hopefully you enjoy this interview as uh, uh, I enjoyed it. Hi, I'm Matt Zuckerman, Toxicology Fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology. With me today is uh, Dr. Robert Hoffman from the New York City Poison Control Center. Hi, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me today uh, on the program. I asked you to talk today mainly because at the last NACCT in September, you had given a really interesting and I thought um, informative talk on medical marijuana and um I was really curious as to sort of why you picked that topic to talk about. The symposium for the whole two day or the whole day was the interaction of drugs and the legal society. And we took, you know, we, we tried to pick big ticket items. So we picked alcohol, we picked nicotine, we picked, oh, we, we picked um, highly caffeinated alcohol beverages, and we really wanted to pick something that, you know, was toxicological, but that was very, very controversial, that was in the news every day. And what better place in, you know, in a, in a regulated drug market to talk about the use of medicinal marijuana? No, I think that was that was a great topic to pick because it was um, everything you just said. It's very timely. It's very current. Um, the, the conference was in Washington, D.C., so there was a lot of discussion about sort of the interface of toxicology and the law. And definitely, I think that's that's a current area of interest to a lot of people. And so in your personal practice, have you seen a lot of people on medical marijuana or was it something you had a lot of personal experience with? Careful on the personal experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in Well, right now in my state, which is New York, medical marijuana is not legal. Obviously, there's a lot of marijuana everywhere that's in use, and it's 
you know, New York State is, I guess you would call, kind of a decriminalized state, and that the penalties for possessions of small amounts are relatively small, um, and I'm not even sure how well they're enforced. But uh, we do not have medical marijuana. We have medical marijuana in New Jersey uh, legally, although it's not quite in full force yet in some of the other surrounding states. And if you look across the country, the number of states and municipalities, I guess if you want to include Washington, D.C., I'm not sure exactly the city, the number of places that medical marijuana exist are growing rapidly almost, almost by the week, if certainly not by the month. No, absolutely. I remember you, you had that map of sort of the United States of, of marijuana, or I'm paraphrasing, but that sort of had different color coding for whether or not marijuana was medical marijuana was legal or merely decriminalized or sort of the availability of marijuana in that state. And I think definitely over the last, it seems like over the last decade, there has been a lot of big movement towards um, uh, either decriminalizing it or providing a, a legal uh, or at least a legal by state law pathway for prescribing medical marijuana. And it also seems like even if it's not happening overnight everywhere, you know, even if tomorrow New York State doesn't pass that law, there aren't a lot of states that are turning back the clock once they legalize it. And so over time, if, if little by little each area is legalizing it, it's, it's gaining more and more impact. And so I thought it was definitely a timely topic to talk about. And, and one of the things I really appreciate that you did is you tried to um, – you tried to step outside of the issue and sort of approach it from a medical perspective, which is something that I feel like has not really been done well before in other in other venues. You really sort of treated it like a pharmaceutical, and so you picked specific um, specific diagnoses where uh, medicinal marijuana was being prescribed, and kind of looked at the data behind that. And um, I was wondering, so did you did you ask? people, uh, you know, what they were prescribing it for? Did you just kind of look in journals and come up? Because you had specific areas. You had um, pain, you had uh, nausea and or um, anorexia. Anorexia. Yep. You had um, glaucoma, which, you know, everyone, I think even even, uh, the grandparents have heard of uh, marijuana for glaucoma sometimes. And then uh, this most surprising one that I had not heard of was was, uh, marijuana for asthma. Mm. And, yeah, and, and the uh, the reason well, I picked those for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that I you know I had been watching this literature on and off as just you know kind of my responsibility to what was going on in the world. And the second is there are a couple of big prospective studies. Um, they're a little bit older, but they're and they're mostly from California that actually asked practitioners what they were giving it out for, and asked patients what they were using it for. So, I mean, there's no, there's no sense discussing an indication that's, a, you know, a half a percent of the use. The vast majority of people who are taking this are either, and it depends on where you go, are either taking it for, you know, some chronic pain issue or for anorexia, wasting, uh, poor nutrition, either related to end-stage uh, HIV, AIDS, or, or malignancy. And, and that's, that's where the ticket is, although there, there are clearly people where asthma, glaucoma, and um, even some seizures, you know, that there, there has been prescribing or use for those indications. And it, it seemed like, um, just for some people that are listening to this that didn't get a chance to attend um, the NACCT or, or the conference, so with glaucoma, it seemed like there was some data that it might be efficacious in a very brief brief um, period of time in terms of decreasing intraocular pressure. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I think that's absolutely true. There, there is no doubt whatsoever, and I don't think anybody has ever even considered debating this, there's no doubt whatsoever that THC, well, even, even go further, smoked THC in the form of marijuana lowers intraocular pressure. That is a fact. Okay, and and it's indisputable, and there is controlled science to support that. The problem is that the duration of effect is unbelievably short, two to three or four hours, and that the dose that's required to get that duration of effect is relatively high. I think you calculate it to be about 3,000 cigarettes per year if you actually wanted to treat the uh, glaucoma, which which is quite a lot of smoking. 
Yeah, not not my calculation. I wish I could take credit for that. That was actually done in a paper by by the Institute of Medicine. So so what it boils down to is, you know, glaucoma is intraocular pressure that has to be treated 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year to prevent blindness and visual loss and all the things that go along with that. They can't treat it for two hours out of the day. That's just not the way it works. And we have great pharmaceuticals that have 12 to even 24 hour duration of effect. Uh, you know, that come in the form of drops, you know, for your eyes that have relatively little, if any, systemic side effects. And compare that to smoking a crude product that has a real incidence of respiratory dysfunction, whether it's asthma or maybe even long-term neoplasm, and go even one step further and look at your ability to function cognitively if you have to smoke pot around the clock every day for the rest of your life. No, I think that's I think that's really an excellent point. And then just to just to clarify, so the Institute of Medicine, the IOM report you're referring to is the Marijuana as Medicine, uh, Science Beyond the Controversy by Allison Mack and is it, it I think Janet Chove. Yeah, and there were there were actually were a couple of IOM reports, but they basically came to the same conclusion. So No, absolutely. And that's it's it's nice that they're the IOM has always traditionally been a really nice objective sort of medical science body that that seems to step into controversial issues and tries to kind of cut to the core and get to the data behind it. Um, and then I, I think the point you just brought up is, is, is a very interesting point that really highlights the uh, different mindset and approach towards pharmaceuticals from a toxicologist or physician perspective and from a consumer perspective. As a toxicologist, whenever I hear people talk about natural supplements or things that come from the earth, or things that aren't produced by big bad evil pharma, um, I kind of I, I, I shudder a little bit because uh, there are plenty of natural things. Um, I mean, anthrax and and cocaine, uh, and cocaine, and lots cocaine of comes from the dirt. Right. I mean, heck, morphine is really just a you know a poppy derivative. Uh, but there are all of these natural things that are incredibly dangerous, and especially when you have to smoke them and inhale smoke. Um, then, then anyone who has any pulmonary issues or asthma issues, I mean, it's just incredibly dangerous. But I perceive, I, I feel like there's this perception that pills, because they are pills, are, are dirty or wrong in some way and impure, and that if you can just sort of smoke something, it's the quote-unquote natural way to gain a, a a sort of therapeutic benefit. Well, you know, I don't think there's data to support that, but I, th I think people's mindset is a little bit different in that it's a little bit of self-determination and, and, and disenfranchisement with whatever you want to call it in modern medicine. If I know I have a disease and I can walk into my natural remedy store or my herbalist or my dietary supplement store and I think I can treat that disease well, then why should I pay... 10 times as much for a prescription and why should I pay money to see a doctor? And so that, you know, when people hear that, you know, marijuana can treat your pain or your whatever, and that they can get that without, you know, some expensive physician bill um, and the price of a pharmaceutical and they can do it in their terms, it seems like a reasonable thing for somebody to do. The problems are twofold. The biggest problem is the potential for misdiagnosis. Now, if you treat yourself, you may get it right or you may get it wrong. You'd like to think your doctor would get it right more often than you would. And the, the, so then with a the misdiagnosis, you're actually not treating something that could be progressive and missing a window to make it significantly better. And then the second issue is that you don't have quality control. You don't have... The, the same kind of things that we expect out of our pharmaceuticals, like good risk profiles and other things that you get with the street drug. Even medically grown marijuana has some variability in THC and other constituencies. Uh, I guess Canada has the biggest model where they set the, the limit of THC in medical marijuana, and I'm going to misquote you the number, but I think it's something like 12% is considered medical grade. 12% or greater THC. No, absolutely. I think that's I think that's a really um that's a really excellent point, the risk of uh, misdiagnosis. Um I think also there's the there's the issue of secondary gain. And I think what we're seeing or areas that prescribe medical marijuana are seeing is that even when you do have a very specific list of indications, especially when some of those indications are so subjective like pain, 
um, you start to see a lot more people requesting that. And I think you'll even see that in, in pharmaceuticals. I mean, we prescribe a lot of opioids, and it seems like there are a lot of people who, uh, who some people are addicted or chronic pain patients or um, have pseudo addiction, but then there are some people who literally know that they just like getting high off of particular opioids, and then all of a sudden the number of people with pain goes up. Whenever you have something that you can't measure, that is a is sort of a road to getting high or getting secondary gain. You're going to be encouraging people to be dishonest. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of history, and you know when the Volstead Act was in full full blown activation, and there was prohibition. You you could prescribe medicinal alcohol. Oh, absolutely! You could get a, a pint of rye on a script pad, sort of. Right. Well, well, this is this is exactly the same thing. You know, marijuana is prohibited, but now you can have medicinal marijuana. So anyway, go, so it, it it really is a nice analogy, which is kind of why we put this lecture together with you know with some Twenty First Amendment work by you know by the, my lawyer friend Mark Serini. I just also. I felt like um, one of the clearest points you made and uh, one of the nicest slides you had in your presentation was looking at sort of nausea and comparing it to placebo and prochlorothazine and some of the other uh, antiemetics. And initially, some of the studies seemed like they were comparing against some of the older antiemetics that really had a fair amount of side effects and um, weren't necessarily as clean uh, or as easy to use as ondansetron. And um, do, do you remember that comparison? Yeah, sure. Here, you know, there's no doubt that marijuana is an antiemetic, although in gigantic doses, it produces this horrible cyclic vomiting syndrome, which is rare, but very real. So just for people who aren't familiar with that, that's sort of the sort of chronic heavy users of marijuana tend to develop cyclic vomiting. And the sort of the um, unique finding in these patients is they almost universally report that taking a hot bath or shower helps to uh, sort of soothe the uh, the uh, nausea, and so they will spend hours and hours in hot baths and showers. It, it's truly bizarre. It is, it's an interesting thing, and we think it's probably modulated by a substance P, and anyway, we have some theories about how maybe to treat it, but that's, that's the wrong place for that. And so it's an antiemetic. There's no doubt about that. Um, when you compare it to placebo, people do wonderfully. When you compare it to its appetite stimulant, properties to placebo, people do wonderful. When it's compared to drugs like prochlorperazine, which not a lot of people use anymore, um, it does at least as well, it probably certainly not worse, uh, and has a very different side effect profile. You know, cognitive impairment as opposed to dry mouth and constipation and urinary retention and the things that you get with heavy anticholinergic drugs. Uh, the one and 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 the people who quote, you know, it's a wonderful antiemetic, you know, always quote these older studies where it was compared to drugs that most of us wouldn't be using anymore. There's a single paper that I presented which I thought was just so wonderful because the standard by which most antiemetics are now judged is by their ability to turn off ipecac induced emesis. You know, so it's it's using our old friend ipecac for something good. Probably the only use for Ipecac known anymore, since it's really not really recommended anymore. That may very well be true, but I mean, it's always a research tool. It's, kind of, it's become kind of interesting. And here, compared to drugs like, you know, the 5-HT3 drugs, and I don't want to necessarily pick on Odansetron because there's Grinisetron and all of its cousins, uh, compared to the 5-HT3 drugs, THC was clearly inferior and has a completely different side effect profile because other than these rare reports of QT prolongation, we don't think much of anything in the side effect profile of these 5-HT3 drugs. No, absolutely. And it also seemed like there was also a distinction in some of those papers between the ability of an antiemetic to alleviate nausea and the actual quantification of bouts of emesis, quantity of emesis. And a lot of the times it seemed like while it did help subjectively with the sense of nausea, whether or not it actually improved with the number of episodes of emesis was more questionable. And whenever you're giving somebody a drug with psychotropic properties that sort of just, I mean, makes them high and makes them feel better, um... I wouldn't call it a confounder, but it's going to be harder to get hard data, I guess. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think that's very accurate. And just by analogy, what's really interesting is, you know, for some people that's pleasurable. And some people actually enjoy that and or don't mind it and go forward. When, when this, you know, when there was one study where they tried to enroll glaucoma patients in a marijuana study, 
you know, because you might you might think about the difference between somebody who has, you know, and it's it's bad to profile people, but you know, cancer patients come in all sizes and shapes and ages. Um, HIV patients come in all sizes and shapes and ages, and you know, some of these people may have prior knowledge with marijuana um, or current knowledge with marijuana. Glaucoma patients tend to be older. Yes. And when they gave this drug to glaucoma patients virtually everybody dropped out because they thought that the psychiatric effects were, were undesirable. No, abs- yeah, absolutely. And I think that's definitely something to think about. In, uh, and that's one of the things that doesn't often get mentioned in terms of use of marijuana. It's, it's, I mean, let's admit it, it's pretty ubiquitous. It's, it's one of the most commonly used illicit substances, um, especially amongst particular age groups and subpopulations. But, um, and, and a huge portion of those patients, the psychiatric effects, I think, have been demonstrated as pretty minimal. But in a certain subset of those patients, it seems like there's been unmasking of underlying psychosis and um, augmentation of psychosis and just causing um, kind of severe reactions that have not really been addressed, the side effects haven't really been addressed by the pro-medicalization advocates. No, I mean, they, you know, remember, if, if, if you're trying to push this, the last thing you want to talk about is side effects. Right. And that, and just even the term side effect is a very, um, it's a very uncool sort of, I think, pharma, pharmacologic term. I think if you walk amongst a bunch of people and say, but what about the side effects? They'll, they'll ask you, what are you, toxicologist or pharmacologist? Um, and it's just not, uh, not something that's cool to do. So in terms of nausea, uh, yeah, it seems like, uh, we've improved some of the, some of the medications. Uh, we talked about weight loss, um, asthma. Yeah. Could you, could you discuss sort of, uh, who, what was the idea behind who first said possibly that, that, um, THC or cannabinoids could treat asthma? I don't, I don't even know where that came from. Well, I don't know either, but I, I know I remember years ago, I mean, this is a long time, you know, some people saying that, you know, you smoked pot and their, and their bronchospasm got better. And, uh, you know, some very famous, you know, this literature is old, you know, some very, very famous pulmonologists actually have some unbelievably beautiful studies showing that in some people, THC is a wonderful bronchodilator. And and it, and it, and, it, and this is this is not you know and I keep saying THC and I really don't mean that because we're not talking about pharmaceutical grade THC we're talking about marijuana smoke, which is THC and a whole bunch of other things is is a wonderful di- you know is a wonderful bronchodilator, um, and again that looks good until you compare it to something like an inhaled beta agonist, and the inhaled beta agonist works quicker, works better, and works longer. No, absolutely. And it seemed like, and, and that's one of the frustrating things too. I, I, I feel like it, it's reasonable if you have an area of medicine that's sort of an orphan area that there are no medications for, that we've been unable to find really adequate drugs for. I think it's, it's reasonable to broaden your scope maybe and look at alternative regimens. But in something like asthma, where we have really a great set of medications with a great track record that are inhalational, so they have minimal systemic side effects, they're quick acting, they're relatively inexpensive very often, and sometimes the arguments are cost when it comes to other medications. But when you have that with asthma and then you compare it to medical marijuana, it just seems like you're really sort of trying to force force an issue. Um, that the, the smoking in terms of bronchospasm and, and the beta agonist is very interesting. It sort of reminds me of, I guess, I don't know if you've seen King's Speech, but there's a discussion about how smoking calms the larynx and sort of soothes the vocal cords, which I guess was a common conception in the past, but not really nowadays. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it just, you know, and again, just the concept of we've done so well as a society to try and curb the use of inhaled nicotine products you know, because of secondhand smoke and all of the other health effects, you know, that this just represents such a major step backwards. And I think that if that were true, um, the, I think that's a, that's an excellent point. And, and in just going back to asthma, it seemed like in a number of those studies, even though it, it might have caused bronchodilation or inhaled um, THC caused bronchodilation in some patients, in an, almost an equal number of patients, or at least a significant portion of patients, it caused bronchospasm, which is not really a side effect you want from an asthma medication. Yeah, it, it it could it could basically be a catastrophe because uh, I, I haven't seen anybody who was able to show data to predict who gets which. 
Absolutely. And then I think the biggest point and the biggest argument that I keep hearing about is um, THC and cannabinoids and marijuana for pain control. And that's 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 a huge market. I mean, the number of patients that are on analgesics seems to be increasing every year. Additionally, there's always huge concern about side effects from, I mean, vast majority of time, these are opioid analgesics. Um, so you've got constipation, you've got side effects, you've got cost issues, there's addiction issues, there's a huge amount of narcophobia. Um, at the same time, there's a huge amount of overprescribing of opioids. And so if you can sort of link this to pain, it's a huge market. A additionally, um, when you're advocating for a particular product, I think you want to use your most um, your most sympathetic patients to do so. And so it's never this is a uh, a 23 year old with chronic pain of no explained etiology who needs marijuana. It is always a stage four cancer patient um, who really cannot get any relief. And uh, and so the argument is that they are being deprived of their of their medical marijuana. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, if you, if, well, two separate issues here. I guess, I guess the first is, you know, if you want to die high, if I had end stage cancer or end stage HIV, and I wanted to spend the last couple of days to hours to weeks or whatever I had left in some euphoric state, that's okay. I really don't have a problem with that. It becomes a palliative agent. Right, but but that's but that's that's not medicine. That's a mind-altering substance, uh, and fine, you know, make make that available, legalize it, decriminalize it, do whatever you want. But you're not making somebody better. There's there's no doubt that cannabinoid receptors are involved in pain modulation, and and I think the future for for now I'm going to be really specific pharmaceutical, the, the future for THC or another cannabinoid receptor agonist um, in pain management is real. And there's good data about now not smoked marijuana, but these sublingual or other preparations of mixtures of THC and cannabidiol modulating pain. And we just have to find the right pharmaceutical. There's a. I just saw in ClinFarm Thera, which is a pretty good journal by you know some very reliable people, smart researchers. Neil Benowitz, who's a toxicologist that we all know, that looked at the ability of cannabinoid, and this is now vaporized cannabis, so it's marijuana, um, to modulate opioid use in people with chronic pain, and it was suggestive, quite nicely, that there is an effect. But the, the the question is, you know, whether you want to leash the respiratory effects and all the other things on a society for a few less opioids. Now, if you're already dying of cancer or HIV and you have a couple of days left to live or a couple of hours left to live, you know, I don't have a problem with it. But there are a lot of pain patients who are 25 years old or 30 years old, and if you start them smoking all day, you know, their pain might be better, but then we have to deal with their lung cancer. And I think that really gets to the heart of it. A lot of times um, there is definitely a perception that because marijuana is so ubiquitous and it's, I think whenever anyone talks about drug legalization, they don't talk about the legalization of heroin or crack or um, crystal meth. They mainly talk about marijuana because it's seen as the nicest sort of illicit substance. And so in this particular case, they're mainly talking about about marijuana. And so when you have somebody who is um, end-stage disease or uh, something like that, then the risk-benefit equation changes completely. And I think the risk-benefit equation changes for all agents for that population. You're going to prescribe far more opioids to those patients. You're going to give them far more other agents because comfort becomes the primary aim versus long-term health effects, which is exactly what you bring up in terms of the pulmonary effects. I think there's a concept, there's a perception that because marijuana um, is a natural sus substance and it doesn't have some of the additives that um, cigarettes, traditionally cigarettes have, that it's almost good for your lungs, but it's still there. There's still carcinogens. It's still inflammatory for the lungs. It still causes long-term lung disease and COPD. And I, I don't really get that that's really being um, mentioned as much when we have this discussion. Yeah, uh, you know, there's, there's, yeah. we should have this discussion about a pharmaceutical cannabinoid receptor drug 
that that's either derived from marijuana or synthesized in a laboratory because that 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 would be fun because then we might actually ha- then we might actually have a real product you know there there is there is an argument for legalization that I'm not going to have an opinion on but I'm just going to state a fact that please remember it's easier for a 15 year old high school kid to buy marijuana than alcohol right you know uh, and and there there's a funny paradox there because you might argue it's a, you might argue that the risk to those people you know the risk between a beer and a marijuana or whatever they might be somewhat similar but it's equally easy for that 15 year old to buy crack cocaine or methamphetamine or ecstasy it's easier for them to buy than this for them to buy alcohol you know so that you know, true legalization and regulation and taxation might have some societal benefits. I'm not weighing in one way or the other. Um, you know, it, that's, my personal opinion is meaningless on this topic, but because we're talking about medical marijuana, but, you know, the drug is in society already, and it's in society in the hands of the most vulnerable group of people you could imagine, making it available to everybody else under some pseudo doctor patient relationship is 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 not the solution no i think i think you brought up a good point and of course i mean this might be a good point to put in a disclaimer that the opinions expressed by myself and yourself are not the opinions of the institutions we work for and this is just sort of an open discussion of this particular topic um and uh and particularly with legislation and regulation of marijuana that was something else at the conference really covered well i felt like in terms of having experts from other countries that have that have taken steps towards um total uh, decriminalization or legalization of substances and how that has affected their substance use um but this was mainly a discussion of the use of of medical marijuana and um and it also seemed like one of the points that you made in your presentation about using um, using THC or cannabinoids, especially cannabinoids for, for modulating pain receptors, is that the quantity of cannabinoid that you would need in a therapeutic product is not what is currently found in natural marijuana. And, and did you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, so the mixture, I mean, the, the nice, the studies that show promise for modulation of pain use ratios of THC to cannab- cannabidiol. It's usually, it's usually a mixed THC to cannabidiol product that are far different than what you find in either typical or atypical marijuana. So it's not, it's not what you get from smoking. Uh, it doesn't mean that you don't get some of that from smoking. It means that you know, the, plant, the plant hasn't gotten it perfectly right yet. And you know, whether we can do better you know, from a legitimate pharmaceutical approach or whether we can't is something that would probably have to be thought about and proved or disproved in the laboratory. You know, my sense, my sense is that I, I bet you we could get there and that this is something that deserves study. I think that was the IOM's final conclusion on the matter as well. When they, when they last or first looked at this, that there's enough promise here that it should be studied, but it should be studied like the pharmaceutical that it is. I really am. I want to thank you for picking that as a topic and giving it as a topic because I feel like it's an issue that has been raging in the public sphere and and sort of rather than when we get a new agent, when we get a new anticoagulant or a new antiviral or antibiotic, typically we hear about it through sort of recognized uh, medical channels of peer review and there's a certain language. I feel like what's happened with this is um, the discussion over the legalization of marijuana has taken a different political approach and has now become more of a discussion. They, I mean, throwing the term medical in front of it um, when I don't know that it's necessarily required. And then through popular press, we're hearing about it as physicians. And I know myself and a lot of peers, I, I have no idea what the data is behind medical marijuana. And, and I just assumed, well, it, it must be really good for pain and it must be really good for all of these other issues if everyone keeps talking about it. But it's, um, I think that's a misperception. And my concern is that through osmosis, we're sort of getting um, a misperception of marijuana. And then the big next question is what happens when you're in a state or you're in a city and, you know, you're working a busy ER shift and somebody walks in and they say, you know, can you refill my marijuana? Um, I, I can't. I can't reach my position or I, I uh, can't reach what's going on. I, I, you know, 
whether or not you're going to do that. And I think the the impulse might be, well, you know, I hear all this good stuff about medical marijuana. He's already got a healthcare provider that's prescribed it to him. Um, I, I I certainly probably wouldn't wouldn't do that. But I, I'm certain that um, that there might be a few people out there that will. And over time, that might increase unless we actually educate ourselves about the data behind the substance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Show me it works, and show me it works as well as or better than something else, and show me that it's safe. And then it's like any other drug I have. You know, my response to your question is pretty simple. If someone walks into my ER and says I have chronic low back pain and I lost my prescription for OxyContin and my physician won't be back until Monday, how about you give me 40 or 50 of them? The answer is very clearly no. but I know some people who might. And like every other, you know, you're, once you enter into a doctor-patient relationship, you're allowed to do anything that's considered reasonable. And if, you know, different medical marijuana states have different laws, uh, Colorado was one of the most interesting ones. You know, they found that, you know, a handful of prescribers were you know, responsible for the vast majority of the use, and they calculated that the number of people who were given a prescription per clinician that you couldn't see these people fast enough to actually do it, and they actually mandated that, you know, medical marijuana, I don't know if the law actually passed, we have to check, but, you know, there was a law suggested that medical marijuana come with a screening examination, you know, the practice of medicine, and a discussion of risks, benefits, and alternative treatments. Yeah, I think once you stop being a physician and start being a supplier, you've sort of, um, it's a dangerous place to be. And it's, I mean, yeah, anyone, I've I've been to to Colorado, it's a beautiful state, it's a lovely state, but when you see billboards for come get medical marijuana, um, you're really no longer a physician, you're really much more of of a marketer, of a uh, of just a supplier. I mean, you're just another a dealer in a way. Um, Hardly enough, in, in I live in Rhode Island, and uh, and they uh, have medical marijuana here. Um, and there was a newspaper story about medical marijuana, and they actually published the names of all the physicians that were prescribing it in the story, which I thought was sort of um, uh, sort of unprofessional, honestly. Uh, I, I don't know that in order to help in order to help people find them or in attempt to stigmatize them. Uh, well, I think that the if you were to ask the newspaper, they would have said it was in an information gathering capacity. But I have a feeling that it was probably um, a lot of the people. Some of the people on that list were oncologists who have very close relationships with these patients. These are people that are prescribing, you know, a handful of prescriptions for very well-known end-stage patients. And I think that they probably felt very stigmatized. Um, I think that if you you prescribe medical marijuana, you don't necessarily have to advertise. Usually a word of mouth will get around. Um, And actually, I don't know. I have to talk to somebody who does prescribe it in terms of, what it's like and how it affects their practice. I have to imagine that it changes their practice dramatically just because whenever you're the candy man, I mean, as somebody who has the ability to prescribe, you know, Percocet and Vicodin and lots of other um, opioids, whenever you have that capacity, um, you have to start dealing with patients who are trying to manipulate you. And and whenever you have a legal ability to, to give someone a controlled substance, um, uh, I think you gain extra responsibility to making sure that that they're not trying to um, abuse it. Um, and I already feel like um, my job is hard enough without having to deal with people searching for marijuana. Well, that 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 last part, I think, you know, everybody, you know, work is difficult and life is difficult. Uh, it, the nice, I guess, the nice part about it is is if you do live in a state that has mer- medical marijuana, um, you and I are not needed you know the, the ability to access seems to be very very easy I think that's I think that's um true I just um I think what's concerning usually is that this discussion the the legislation and the and the and the discussion are not um are going beyond uh the medical practitioners and are happening without us I don't think we're a part of the conversation and I feel like we've sort of fallen behind and that hopefully one of the purposes of a segment like this is to broaden people's perspective of the knowledge about it so that we as practitioners join the conversation. I feel like whenever you have a discussion of a medical therapeutic, um, physicians should be at the table. And I really feel like on this one, we haven't been at the table. It's been um, patients and quote unquote patient advocates and legislators uh, without very big physician presence. Yeah, well, I th- that's my observation as well. You know, we need we need whatever whoever whoever our big advocates are, 
whether that's the state medical societies or the commissioners of health or you know those public health people they need to weigh in on behalf of the practice of medicine well, one of the things that actually upsets me about this is I think we have two national conversations going on we have a conversation to legalize marijuana which is one complete issue and then we have a conversation to make medical marijuana available and my take is that there are many people who want to legalize marijuana who are using medicalized marijuana as kind of a gateway as a that's probably a bad choice of terms with regard to marijuana but as 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 as, as a foothold into into the community and and that's what really upsets me uh and, and I'm really concerned about that because if we treated but if we treated this like a pharmaceutical like a drug the conclusion would be very, very different than if we treated it like a social issue. If you, uh, you know, and when people ask me about this, you know, my answer is always the same. If you want to legalize mar marijuana, that's a social political issue that should be dealt with on the municipality or state government or, well, right now it's a federal issue still because it is not legal. Uh, but if, you know, but using the practice of medicine as a crutch to get marijuana in into society is kind of an insult to medical practitioners. No, I think that's I think that's very very true. Um, and hopefully we'll we'll see what happens as this issue sort of develops. Uh, it's sort of going along in parallel with many areas attempting to totally decriminalize marijuana. And so um, if, as we've sort of discussed, it becomes more of a legal discussion and less of a medical therapeutic discussion, then it might become a moot point should they decide to legalize it. But even at that point, if we actually want to help our patients, I think hopefully, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies start to develop tailored agents that will have the benefits of some of these compounds without the side effects in terms of the pulmonary side effects and the, and the psych psychiatric side effects. I mean, that would be, the, I mean, if anything good is going to come out of this, there should be an awareness that there's the potential for a drug here. And that, and that, that potential alone there's a little bit more investigation than, than has actually happened. And, you know, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wonderful if we can learn from, you know, generations, from centuries of marijuana use, if we, if we could find something that actually really helped somebody in a, in a safe and effective way. I mean, that's, that's what we practice medicine for. That, you know, I don't know, I don't know with any kind of certainty that we're going to get there, but it certainly deserves a, it, it deserves a look. Yeah, and I think that's that's very true with a lot of things. A lot of agents that we use nowadays were discovered in natural forms and were used. I mean, penicillin, um, even even lithium in in sort of natural forms and and other agents. And uh, they over time their safety profile improved because we essentially we um, actually did medicalize them and turn them into. Um, a safe, a safe um, vehicle and a, and a safe agent. So hopefully that happens. I, I would appreciate you uh, taking the time to meet with me and, and, and talk with this particular issue. I appreciate uh, the fact that you took interest in this. And you know, I, there hasn't been a lot in, in the toxicology literature or in the toxicology community specifically discussing this. And I have gotten a lot of emails and had a lot of discussions with people since the conference. So I guess, I guess maybe people heard, which is, which is all we can hope for. So I want to thank you for joining me on this segment today uh, of Talks Talk. And once again, uh, this is uh, Robert Hoffman at the New York City Poison Control Center. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Next up, a Talks Pearl from Brian Wolk, my co-fellow. Hi, this is Brian Wolk, uh, one of the Fellows in training at uh, UMass Medical Center in Worcester, Mass. Laying down a tox pearl. So, uh, pearl of the day is don't give naloxone to intubated patients. So, we were seeing a patient who was intubated in the ICU polysubstance overdose. And the ICU team decided to go ahead and give the patient 0.04 milligrams of uh, naloxone. And at this point, the patient became agitated and uh, they decided to go ahead and pull the ET tube and go ahead and give another dose of 0.04 milligrams and luckily the patient did fine with this 
however, about an hour later, the patient had some recurrent respiratory depression with a respiratory rate of about 10 to 12, uh, rousable to sternal rub, and some gurgling respiration. So did require some more naloxone, actually ended up on a naloxone drip, and did fine, but uh, we have seen other circumstances where it's not gone quite as well. So dangers of giving naloxone to intubated patients. Patient is already intubated, already has a protected airway. So generally, if you just wait, eventually their opioid will be metabolized or eliminated, and then you can wake them up and pull out their tube, and they'll do fine. If you go ahead and give them naloxone, a few things can happen. So they can wake up and become agitated and risk harm to themselves or the staff. They can self-extubate and cause some trauma to their vocal cords. And finally, you can uncover an underlying toxidrome, like a sympathomimetic toxidrome, particularly in the patient who may have been speedballing. And so you can get yourself into quite a bit of trouble. So generally, want to avoid giving naloxone to intubated patients unless there's some particular reason, uh, perhaps for diagnostic purposes, although generally... If you have some idea of what they took and it's consistent, just let them wake up and then you can pull the tube. That's my talk's problem. And uh, finally, we get a listener question uh, answered by Ed Boyer. I want to thank those of you who have uh, sent in your questions. Uh, continue to do so. You can do that by emailing us at TalksTalk at TalksTalk.org or go to our website where you can uh, see past episodes and um, contact us on our Contact Us link. This comes from Vince Cruz, second-year med student at the Cleveland Clinic, Lerner College of Medicine. So uh, Vince is in a five-year research MD program and has been trying to think about research projects to do, has a background in electrical engineering, and was looking for something that would combine uh, his interest in emergency medicine and toxicology with engineering. Also, Vince was wondering if we had a recommendation for a good tox resource for a med student who hasn't necessarily started clinical rotations yet. And uh, I think that's one of those questions where if you ask three toxicologists, you'll get four different answers. To answer this question is uh, our program director, Ed Boyer. Hey, I'm Ed Boyer. And, um, you know, the, the relationship between engineering and, I guess in a more general sense, technology and medical toxicology is something that's uh, near and dear to my heart. That's an interesting question, combining uh, electrical engineering and medical toxicology research. Uh, you know, one of the things that we have going on here at the University of Massachusetts is the integration of electrical engineering and computer science into uh, substance abuse research. A lot of medical toxicology is tied up in substance abuse. And what we've done over the last 11 years or so now is to study the relationship between technology and drug abuse. Originally, that was the relationship between the Internet and the information it contained on behaviors that led to drug abuse, but now we're actually moving towards formal engineering responses, wearable biosensors that transmit continuous physiology data to smartphones that run artificial intelligence protocols that detect behavioral transitions. We are hoping that we can detect uh, transitions to drug craving, towards PTSD flares, and, the, and then study the relationship between drug abuse and psychiatric disease. I know there are a lot of people who would say that this isn't emergency medicine research because it's not directly related towards moving the meat through an emergency department. But I think that's, I think it's a narrow, uh, narrow viewpoint of things. There's no National Institute of Emergency Medicine, just as there's no National Institute of Surgery or National Institute of Internal Medicine. What NIH really prefers to see are really innovative investigators doing really good research that has an impact on public health, irrespective of specialty. So emergency physicians who do high-quality research that transcends ideological barriers, it just doesn't make sense to me to toss out those folks by saying, oh, well, it's not emergency medicine. I think it's a, I think it's a narrow approach, and I think that people just need to think a little bit more broadly. 
the good news for people in training, and this is for medical students, undergraduates, residents, what have you, is that if you find a place that's doing things, make sure that they have funding. Because a group that has NIH funding to pursue engineering and medical toxicology related research has the opportunity or creates the opportunity for junior people, individuals in training, to apply for uh, fellowship awards. They can be fellowships at the undergraduate level, the medical student, uh, resident, or postdoctoral subspecialty fellow training level to pursue innovative research so the trainee can learn these new interdisciplinary research methods and create their own careers. Because the more people who think about problems, the greater the innovation and the broader the range of uh, responses to these public health problems can be created. Um, a resource. The, the resource that I prefer are, is, is the Clinical Management of Poisoning and Drug Overdose. It's the Harad uh, Shannon and Winchester book. Uh, Michael Shannon was the, the editor of the last edition that came out, I think in 2000, oh, 2008 or so. It's a fantastic textbook. It tells you what you need to know. I also like Marsha Ford's textbook. That may be because I'm, I had to study for the boards in toxicology at one point, and Marsha Ford's textbook told me uh, in a more convenient way, a lot of the information that I needed to know. For a carry-around resource with you at all times, I like Kent Olson's little book. It's a great resource and has a lot of information that people uh, people can use in real time. Okay, and I've been told I have to mention Goldfrank. Goldfrank is a, a really, it's a really good textbook. The, the difficulty with it is that you have to know what you're looking for in it. It's more like a reference text for somebody who knows what they're doing already because absolutely everything is presented. So if you want to find out about the rarest of rare presentations for something, it'll be in Goldfrank. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Talks Talk. Uh, and I would remind you and encourage you to head to our website, TalksTalk.org. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K.org, where you can look at our T-shirt designs and vote on your favorite T-shirt designs, submit some of your own. Also there, you can check out our iTunes link, as well as our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Uh, so head on over to our website, TalksTalk.org. And this is our last episode of 2011, although I invite you to join us on our next episode uh, when we'll have some exciting segments. We're going to be talking about arsenic and apple juice is apple juice trying to kill us the conspiracy of the apple growers of america or uh, or is this just hysteria and also we'll be having our panel of toxicologists to discuss the top em tox articles of 2011 um, we're going to have multiple toxicologists in one room uh, there might be fighting might be screaming might be very Jerry Springer-esque. We'll have to bolt the chairs down, but join us for that uh, episode and uh, have a happy new year. This is Matt Zuckerman with Talks Talk. Wonderful.